Well, I'd like to welcome Dr. Mary Neal, who's a board-certified orthopedic spine surgeon who drowned while kayaking on the South American River. She experienced life after death. She went to heaven and back, conversed with Jesus, and experienced God's encompassing love. She was returned to earth with some specific instructions for work she still needed to do. Her life has been one filled with miracles and the intervention of God. Her story gives reason to live by faith and is a story of hope. Welcome, Mary, and thank you very much for talking to the group leaders across the United States. And I will turn this over to you now. Okay, thank you. And I will uh, tell you that I will just start talking, but please feel free to interrupt me at any point if you have a question, because I may go over things more quickly than you like or perhaps (laughs) too slowly. If it's getting late on the East Coast. Uh, so anyway, the way this goes will be partly up to all of you. Thank you for listening. So just in background, as as Bob said, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, a spine surgeon. And I grew up in Michigan. I went to church on Sundays. Uh, but that was far from <laughs> far from implying that I was particularly religious or spiritual. I I did believe in God, but I don't think that I spent all that much time thinking about it. I think I was pretty typical both in my childhood and in my sort of college years, medical school years, etc. During which time I really was more concerned about the details of daily life than I was concerned about my spiritual life or what what role God played in it. And then I got married and had kids, and like so many people in this country at least, once you have kids you start thinking a little bit more about your spirituality. And I certainly during that time kept wanting to put my spirituality higher on my priority list, but as any of you who have had kids know, it's really difficult to figure out how you're even going to take a shower, let alone worry about thinking about God. So I think I was pretty typical. I lived, We then lived in California, and I ran the spine service at USC, and ultimately... Uh, we had the opportunity to move to Jackson Hole, and we did. And my husband and I are both very physically active. We are involved in a lot of different sports, one of which is kayaking. And we kayaked quite a bit before we moved to Wyoming and continued to kayak after we moved. And in January of 1999, my youngest son was a toddler And at that point, I thought that he was old enough, as were the rest of the kids, for us to finally go on another international trip without them. So we went to Chile to kayak with some very dear friends of ours uh, who are professionals. They run a a kayak and raft 
company in in Idaho, and they run trips to Chile in the winter. So we went down there, and we spent a week or so having a delightful time. I don't know if any of you have been to Chile, but it it's wonderful. It's beautiful. The people are wonderful. Everything's great, but it is very remote. It's a long way away. And on what was going to be our last day of paddling, we were planning on paddling a river that is quite remote, uh, as is really all of southern Chile, but this particular river is very remote, and it's very well known for its uh, waterfalls or drops. And their waterfalls not big, not like Niagara Falls or something like that, but they are drops in the range of 10 to 15 to 20 feet, which might sound might sound a little crazy to someone who doesn't kayak, but those drops are not unreasonable, and we're certainly within our skill set, and we'd been working on that the whole time we were in Chile, specifically to, to do this part of the river. And that morning, my husband actually woke up with terrible back pain, which he'd never had prior to that, hasn't had since. But he decided not to kayak that day. He decided to just uh, take us to the put-in or drop us off at the river, and then he would meet us at the end. And so he dropped us off and then left. And I put on the river then with uh, several of members of the, the family, these dear friends of ours. And then there were a few other Americans and a Chilean fella as well. And we started down the river, and we came to one of the early drops and sort of pulled off to the side of the, side of the river to discuss how we were going to run it. And one person took off out of the eddy and went down what it wasn't actually the main drop in terms of volume of water, but it was the portion of the waterfall that we had identified as sort of the uh, the appropriate drop. And her boat kind of went sideways, and she bobbled a little bit, and she was stuck, and her boat basically blocked that channel. This river had rocks in it, so it wasn't just one wide-open drop. So her boat was crosswise, and she got out of the boat and swam downstream. Uh, and I was uh, after her. And this part of the scene is a little confusing because there was actually another person that bobbled past me, went down a drop, her boat was pinned, and she swam on, but nobody actually knew that. And it was toward this drop then that I was committed to going because the other drop was was essentially blocked off. And when you're in the river, if it's in a big river, big volume, the current is such that you can't turn around. You can't paddle upstream. You can't, uh, there weren't any eddies, so you can't really get out. You're, you're committed. And so I veered off to the left toward this other drop and as soon as I crested the drop, uh, I looked down and I knew <laughs> I knew that there were going to be some problems because there was a tremendous amount of volume 
and tremendous flow, but the bottom of the drop was very um, cluttered, meaning rocks and uh, a lot of turbulence. There wasn't a clean outflow of water. There wasn't a clean exit. And as I went over the drop, I assumed that I would hit the bottom and flip and not be able to roll up and I would have to get out of the boat and swim. And that's never a really great thing. It's sort of like spending a few minutes in a washing machine. And you get banged up a little bit and it's never fun, but it's not so bad. (laughs) But I looked at it and I thought, okay, well, this is not going to be so good. Uh, But then as it happens, my boat actually was pinned in both the rocks at the bottom, and then actually my boat somehow was underneath another boat. Um, And that's a little confusing, but nonetheless, I was pinned in the waterfall and immediately submerged. And the force of the water was such that I was sitting upright in the boat, facing, well, facing down stream, sort of, uh, but the force of the water absolutely flattened my body to the front deck of the boat, and I knew that, first of all, I mean, I knew I needed to get out. I knew I probably wasn't going to be able to free the boat, and I knew I was far enough away from the riverbank that no one was going to be coming to get me, and so I very quickly did all sorts of things, trying to jiggle the boat loose, trying to reach the spray skirt, which is the neoprene, sort of the neoprene jacket that stretches between your body and the boat to keep the water out. And if you're going to exit the boat, you pull that off. And I tried to reach that and pull it off. I tried to push out on the foot pegs. I tried to do all sorts of things. But the force of the water was such that I couldn't even bring my arm back far enough to reach the spray skirt, let alone pull it off. And, I mean, I'm a spine surgeon. I don't I don't particularly panic. I don't think I've ever panicked. But I just very, with, with a great deal of focus and urgency, sort of kept going through the sequence trying to get myself free of the boat. And it became very clear that I was not going to be able to do much of anything. And, I mean, I was very conscious of everything. I was very conscious of my circumstances. I was very conscious of the fact that I didn't have any air and wasn't going to be getting any air, and I I would probably drown. And I then very sincerely asked only that God's will be done. And at that moment, everything changed in that I felt absolute comfort and peace. I had no anxiety, no fear. I felt great. And I was overcome by a very, very physical sense of being held and comforted 
and absolutely reassured that my husband and my children would be fine, regardless of whether I lived or died. They would be fine. And while I was being held, we went through a a life review that wasn't so much, it wasn't, for me at least, it wasn't uh, like watching a movie or that sort of a thing. It was really, and it wasn't um, necessarily my entire life, but it was revisiting some episodes or some occasions in my life and reliving them, not in the sense of watching them, but re-experiencing them and, and getting an understanding of the ripple effects of that that event and really sort of gaining this complete understanding of how I felt in the event, how other people felt, and then what what the ripple effects were of that. And then that sort of finished and I was still there. <laughs> and I actually started getting really bored because I had been reassured that everything was fine. And I just, I'm not a particularly patient person. And I found myself at one point just thinking, well, okay, I'm clearly not, I'm clearly dead. I've been underwater a very long time. I'm being held by a person I I believe to be Jesus. I'm fine. Everyone's fine. So let's get on with it. (laughs) And then I started feeling my body being sucked out of the boat by the current. And as that was happening, and if you can imagine the mental picture of sitting in the boat and the cockpit is around you so that for your body to be sucked forward out of the boat, first, it was okay at my hips because that's the way your hips bend. But then when it gets down to my knees, my knees have to bend backwards on themselves just to be able to exit the the boat. And as that was happening, I kept doing sort of little self-assessment exams. And from an intellectual standpoint, I was sort of looking at it thinking, gosh, that's that's really interesting, <laughs> and feeling like I could tell which bone was breaking or which ligaments were tearing. And at one point, I even wondered, I sort of thought, gosh, I'm, I'm sure I'm screaming. I just must not know it. And I sort of took a step back and thought, no, actually, I feel really good. I didn't have any pain. I, I felt great, actually. And as my body was being sucked out of the boat, I could feel my spirit peeling away from my body, sort of like two pieces of tape peeling apart. And when I felt my body released from the boat, I felt my spirit sort of break free completely from my body. And at that point in time, I rose up and out of the water, and I could see the river and everything, and I was greeted by this group of people, and I'm going to call them people 
but I don't know what to call them. People, beings, spirits, I don't know. All the words sound a little corny for one reason or another. But they were beings that I couldn't identify as specific people I had known here on Earth. But I knew that I had known them for an eternity. And I knew that they had known me. And it was knowing in a very different sense than we talk about knowing something. It was knowledge on a very absolute, pure basis. And these people were so happy and joyous to see me. And we, and I, and I them. It was as though I hadn't seen them for ages. And we celebrated and it was great. And they then started taking me down this uh, absolutely beautiful path toward this great domed hall of sorts. And it was very, very large and was, I mean, it's impossible to describe it, but it was all beauty and all color simultaneously. And, I mean, it was beauty that was so encompassing that I felt like I could taste it and feel it and hear it, not just see it. It was, again, almost at its at its essence. And this hall, the path, the beings were not only incredibly brilliant, but absolutely exploding with God's love. And I wanted to get to that hall. I could hardly wait. I It was so alluring. I felt like I was going home, like truly, truly going home. But time and space had a, had a different uh, sense. And while we were going down the path, simultaneously then we could look back and I could see the riverbank and I could see them pull my body to the riverbank and start CPR. And the dad, the family, the dad and then two of the boys uh, were doing the CPR. And one of the boys was a young man. He was 18. And he's such a gentle, loving person. And I would look back and he was looking up. And I felt like he was looking right at me, even though he, he couldn't see me. But he kept looking up and calling out to me and saying, Mary, I know you're here. Please come back and take a breath. And he would say that with such a uh, with such pain and vulnerability that I would just have such empathy for him <clears throat> that I would sort of stop the beings who were guiding me and say, oh, I'll be right back. And I would go back to my body and lie down and take a breath and then leave. And then 
we'd get a little further down the path, and this guy would call out again, and I'd stop and go back and take a breath. And that cycle went on a number of times until finally I was so irritated I couldn't believe it. I just wanted to scream at him to just leave me alone. (laughs) Everyone's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, because I really wanted to get to this hall. And this hall was, I believe, sort of the entrance to heaven. And it was just so alluring. That's the only word. All the words I used seem very pale and uh, not very descriptive in comparison to the reality of it. And this hall had, we we arrived and there was this great sort of archway that was the actual entrance. And I could see all sorts of other beings or spirits running around inside and they all looked very busy. And I'm, I don't know what they were busy doing, but they were all very busy doing God's work. And when I arrived with these other beings, everyone looked up and they were really happy and ecstatic and joyful and and I could hardly wait because this uh entrance hall of sorts uh I knew was where uh we're given the opportunity an ultimate opportunity to choose God or turn away. And I only know what I know. <laughs> I've been asked a number of times, well what what if you turn away? What happens? I don't know. I know that I was more than ready to make that choice. I was excited, and I wanted to be there. And just as quickly as everyone felt this rejoicing, uh, there was sort of this palpable sense of disappointment that descended on everyone, including me. And the beings who had guided me there uh, told me that it wasn't my time to be there, that I had more work on earth to do, and I had to go back to my body. And I'm not a particularly passive person, so I objected, and I I, I did not want to come back. I love my husband, and I love my children more than I can imagine loving anything else on earth. Uh, But I did not want to come back. I wanted to be there. I knew I was home. And so at that point, they gave me some insight into some of the work I had left and reassured me that soon, like within, you know, days, weeks, I would also be given more information. And uh, then these beings took me back down the path and back to my body. And I laid down and then I was uh, reunited with my body. And I will say that both when it separated and then when I was reunited, for me, it was a very seamless transition. When I initially, when my spirit and my physical body separated, it was so seamless 
that even though when I was still in the boat, I knew I must be dead because I'd been underwater a long time. It wasn't until I was looking at my body and watching them do CPR that sort of struck me that, oh, huh, well, yeah, I guess I really am <laughs> because it was so seamless and, and really blissful. I mean, I felt great. So then I was reunited with my body, and <laughs> then that was only step one because this river was very remote in what at that time was a very remote country. And the hillsides were very thickly covered with bamboo forests. And the reason my husband hadn't boated with us that day was because once you're on this river, there was sort of no way out. And so there they were. Now I was I was breathing and I had a heart rate. But they didn't know what to do next. And uh, just as they looked up, uh, these couple of Chilean fellas, young men, uh, were just there. They hadn't been there, and they didn't say anything, and nobody actually spoke to them. Uh, but they were just there, and they loaded me up on this kayak to uh, carry me, and uh, they, in addition to the guys who had done the CPR, sort of hacked their way through the the bamboo and finally found a little dirt trail and went on that for a couple hours. And then finally, uh, they arrived at a, or we arrived at a dirt road. And right where we came out, there was an ambulance waiting, which in this country doesn't sound so crazy, but in 1999 in Chile, they, they didn't really have ambulances, even in Santiago. I mean, that just was not a very common sight. And to be waiting for us was truly nothing short of a miracle. So then we drove for a while, and we arrived at this little sort of medical clinic of sorts, and my husband, who's an orthopedic surgeon, uh, put a couple of splints on my legs, and then we kind of, and then loaded me in the back of the pickup truck, and then we went to the airport. There's a tiny, tiny little airport, and we thought that maybe somehow we could get to you know, to a bigger city. Um, and this is where <laughs> I will fully recognize and accept all criticism coming my way because what we did was incomprehensible and foolish. But I had decided that I was coming back to Wyoming. Uh, my children were here, and I was coming back here to be cared for. And 
that uh, we weren't thinking. I mean, I, I clearly wasn't thinking. I was still in an absolute state of shock that I was even here on Earth. And my husband was in an absolute state of shock for all all of what had happened. And all I can think about when I look at it retrospectively is that we were both doctors and everyone else, you know, they're, I don't know, they're, they're kayakers. And I don't think that there was anyone who felt like they were in a position to question us or to, to look at us and say, are you guys crazy? You need a medevac. But I don't know. So anyway, they, uh, we drove off trying to get to the airport. The airport was closed. Another one was closed. Make a long story short, my husband carried me on his back, and rather than calling for a medevac, um, presumably, you know, he was, I mean, he was traveling with me, and presumably he's, you know, he's capable of taking care of me on the trip, but obviously, I mean, he, he was not thinking straight. Um, anyway, it took uh, almost two days to get home, and by the time we got home, I also had a horrible pneumonia and ARDS, and so I finally made yeah. it to the emergency room here, and then, of course, the internist told my husband I wasn't going to make it through that night, uh, but I did. <laughs> And, I mean, that in itself, I mean, there, all along the course of the two days, there were little miracles along the way. And and then I was in the ICU, and I had two deacons visit me who own one of the local ski shops. And I felt great. I, I still didn't have any pain. I had no pain for a couple of weeks, I still felt absolute bliss, shock that I was here, disappointment that I was here, but I really felt uh, like I had one foot in our world and one foot in God's world. And they then brought me a number of great magazines, all the magazines I like to read, and I thought, okay, well, what the heck, because I was totally immobile and incapacitated. Uh, so I opened up the magazines and tried to read them, and everything was blurry. And I found that everything was blurry. I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't have a conversation with someone. I couldn't look at anything for more than one second or two seconds because it was so distracting. And I normally have, or at least at that time, had perfect vision. Uh, so it was very distracting. And so I thought, okay, well, this is going to be a long, <laughs> this is going to be a long stay, a very boring stay. Uh, but then I asked the nurses for a Gideon's Bible, and I flipped open the Bible to, I don't know, the Psalms or you know something, looking for, you know, Bible verses to whatever, give me comfort and strength and all those kinds of things. And everything was blurry. And I sort of in in disgust sort of just went, oh, gosh, and was just 
kind of throwing the thing down when a verse became very clear. And it was First Thessalonians fifteen sixteen, and it said, uh, rejoice always. And it was crystal clear. I thought, wow, okay. Well, okay. And then I flipped back to the verses that I actually had been looking for, and they were all still blurry. And that particular verse, Be Joyful Always, uh, was the only thing that I could actually read. And later in the day, the next verse, uh, which is Pray Without Ceasing, became clear. And ultimately, the verse after that became clear, which is Give Thanks in All Things, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And those three verses in the Bible were all I could read for several days because, and I tried to read other things, but those three things were all I could read uh, for a solid three plus days. So I certainly spent a lot of time thinking about them and I was totally immersed in trying to process what had happened to me and thinking about what I'd been told and still not believing that I was here and while I was in, in the ICU, then I had another out-of-body experience in which I felt that I was again in heaven, and I was sitting in this exquisitely beautiful sun-drenched field beyond anything. And I appreciate beauty. I mean, I live in a beautiful place. The beauty is a different, it's a different kind of beauty. And I was sitting and I was talking to a person, that's not the right word, but I was talking to a person I I knew was Jesus. And we spoke for what seemed like many hours about uh why I was on earth. Uh he gave me more information or more um we talked more about some of the reasons having to do with my husband's health, but then the the and a couple minor things, but the two main things had to do with um uh, being here for the death of my oldest son and really being given a mandate to share my experiences so that other people could either find their way back to God, find their way to God, or deepen their spirituality. And we talked about all sorts of other things. Um, You know, the concept of why bad things happen to good people. And that's something once explained to me seemed really, really obvious. <laughs> um, and there are, it's all a matter of perspective. I mean, there really, there aren't bad things. There are just things. Because in every thing that we call bad, there's incredible beauty. And beautiful thing comes of it. I mean, I 
I look at my kayaking experience, and over the 12-plus years, I have had many, many people come into my office and say, oh, I heard about that boating accident. That must have been horrible. But the fact is, it was wonderful, and it's the greatest gift I've ever been given. I've never had a single person come to me and say, oh, my gosh, you must be so happy that you had that kayaking accident. So it's all this matter of perspective. I mean, even if you go back to the time of Jesus, Jesus was a guy who was betrayed by his best friend, arrested, beaten, humiliated, and murdered. If that were to happen today, you know, of course, it'd be all over the Internet, all over every newspaper. We'd all be wringing our hands about how horrible it was. But the fact is, 2,000 years later, you know, we celebrate it. We think it's one of the greatest things that ever happened. So it's really all this matter of perspective because the problem is we can't see the big picture. You know, we don't understand the ripple effects. We don't understand necessarily what incredible things will come of something that we've called bad. Uh, But anyway, we talked for what seemed like many hours, and then I was back in the hospital bed, and like a good cynic, I called the nurse, and I wanted to know what medication I was on, because whatever the medication was, I figured I was on a narcotic or something. I figured I wanted more of it, Um, because Jesus, I mean, the alluring part of it is just something that can't be explained. I mean, this the intensity of love and compassion and kindness that exploded from him was something that you know, there's there's nothing to compare it to. Um So I called the nurses, and they pulled out my records, and other than antibiotics, I wasn't getting anything. Um, And I actually went back and checked the medical records later, several years later, and, yeah, I really wasn't getting anything, which went along with my perception. I mean, I still, as I said, I still didn't have pain. Um, And then I had one more out-of-body experience that was, much shorter. Um, And then after about a week and a half, I sort of was back in the world. And I did have pain, and then I had multiple surgeries and a lot of rehab. Um, And it took me probably a year and a half of really being in this continued state of disbelief and depression that I was here. And then finally, I sort of had to make this very conscious decision that I needed to be about the business at hand because I knew that from my conversations, God really does have a plan for each of us. And we really do need to be about his business every day. So 
I kind of made this conscious choice to re-engage in life, basically, and did so. I mean, as I said, my kids are still young, and I knew that I was supposed to share my story, my experiences, my story, and write about them, but I, first of all, (laughs) didn't want to. Second of all, was too busy. And thirdly, but probably most importantly, I really didn't want to, I didn't feel like I could discuss my experiences honestly with my kids still being young because I really, really, really did not want to come back. And I never wanted my kids to feel like they weren't enough which is how kids feel, for example, after uh, suicide. You know, the rest of the family is always left with this feeling of, gosh, I, w- I wasn't enough for them. And I never wanted my kids to feel that. And so I kind of kept putting it off and putting it off. And then in 2009, I was, I felt like, <laughs> I felt like God picked up my bed and threw me out of it and said, okay, now. And I was absolutely compelled to write this book and put everything in it. And I was awake at 3, 4 in the morning, every morning for about a week, just pouring out everything into this book. Um before I went to work in the day. And then I kind of, you know, revised it. I finished what I thought was the final manuscript uh, a couple hours before my oldest son was killed. And when I look back at that, um, I, I would like to sort of take the blame for putting it off in terms of, gee, you know, I was a procrastinator, et cetera. But I think the reality is that God's timing is absolutely perfect. And when that time was perfect, that's when I was compelled to write. Because I had been very, very careful over the years not to think about my experiences too much. And there are some people who have had near-to-death experiences and sort of live with with them and live in them kind of all the time. And that's great. But for me, I had to compartmentalize it uh, because it was almost too distracting because the more I allowed myself to think about it, the more I wanted to go back. And the more I wanted to go back, the less focused I was on my daily life and getting done the things that I knew I was supposed to be doing. And so I really was kind of jealously guarded those memories. And by writing it before my uh, son was killed, I allowed myself not just to remember all the details, which, I mean, it's not like 
uh, it's not like they weren't a part of my every day. I mean, they were a part of my every breath. Uh, but I allowed myself to truly, fully immerse myself back into the entire experience. And by doing that, it allowed me truly to uh, fulfill the job, the roles, and do the jobs that I knew were mine to do uh, when my son died in terms of uh, really being an absolutely solid spiritual rock, not only for my family but for the community, and really helping them take this event that, again, you know, everyone described as tragic and horrific and everything else, and really help them make that transformation from seeing this as something tragic to seeing this as something of beauty and inspiration and something that would really motivate them to look for God in their own life and to realize that every day really is important and they need to make the most of every day and focus not on themselves, but focus on service to others and truly trying to make the world a better place, trying to really strive to be more Christ-like. Um, so I think the timing of writing it was great. I mean, it was perfect. Um Let's see. And then since then, I mean, it's been one thing after another. And here I am talking to you. <laughs> Which is absolutely perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this whole process, uh, you know, I, I've said a number of times, I don't mind promoting my book because I don't feel like it's my story. I truly feel like it's God's story, and I happen to be living it, but I really believe that, first of all, it's God's story, and second of all, I've seen the power that sharing my experiences has on other people to really help them not just look at my experiences and say, oh, yeah, that happened to her, but to take that and realize that actually when I look at my own life, I can see the hand of God. And the fact is God has a plan for each of us and is at work in each of our lives. And I think the challenge for each one of us is to take the time <laughs> And put out the effort to look and recognize God's work when we see it instead of just shrugging it off to, oh, isn't that weird? Oh, what a, what a coincidence. I mean, the reality is when you put everything together, it, it's statistically impossible to come up with the patterns that each person can see in their own lives. And by looking at their own lives and seeing God's hand, that, I believe, is what can make this transformation 
into an absolute trust that God has a plan for each of us, and we really we need to be about his business, and there really is life after death. And when you get to the point where you go, yeah, actually, you know what? There really is life after death, and our time on earth is very short, that you really then look at each day very differently because each day really matters. Every choice, every decision, every interaction. You have no idea what the ripple effects are of every interaction you have with people. Better, you know, good and bad. So, yes. I have a question. Yes. About about that work and that uh, sense of uh, mission. There seem to be two realms with which we're trying to carry this message. One is scientific materialist that tends to resist the message. And the other is religious, doctrinal, dogmatic, historical, that also re- resists because it's outside of their enculturation. Um, do you have suggestions for how to walk amongst them? Well, um, <laughs> couldn't you ask me an easy question? <laughs> now, here's the thing. I think with regard to, quote, scientists, I really very strongly feel that it's primarily really intellectual laziness. People hide behind science just like they hide behind all sorts of things. But the fact is, if you if you want to just talk about the human body, there is no doubt that the more we learn about the human body, the less we understand it. And the less we understand its complexity in terms of the interactions of the systems within the human body and without. I mean, it's it's incredible, and I think it's it's two things. I think it's an it's an intellectual laziness to look at their lives and actually say, okay, with an open mind, I'm going to look around and see if I can see God working in the world. But I also think it's an intellectual arrogance because that's what scientists are. You know, we're really smart and we know everything about it. And that's that. That could be said for the, um, uh, uh, in regards to religious dogma, dogma also. Well, I would agree, except I think their religious doctrine uh, people, I think um, that's, a, that's a human arrogance. It's putting God in a little box. And I will tell you that we have no ability to comprehend the love of God. We just can't even begin to understand how intense and how pure it is. And, I mean, I've lately, (laughs) I've been dealing with this quite a bit because with the book uh, being out, you know, it doesn't particularly follow doctrine and 
fundamentalist Christians are not happy with some of the things I've said. But it's a very, I mean, that's like a two-hour discussion because when you talk about doctrine, and don't get me wrong, I am an absolute supporter of organized religion. I think it serves a very number of very important roles. But if you're going to be intellectually honest, you have to say, okay, number one, it is a an institution created by human beings, and we've never made anything perfect yet. <laughs> I mean, we always have issues. And then the second thing you have to look at is you have to say, okay, well, those human beings created the doctrine. You know, I don't care what the denomination is. The doctrine was decided upon by a group of men a long time ago who decided what made it in and what was going to be excluded. And I think you have to accept that and accept that humans are are sometimes flawed. They have you know, different interpretations, different contexts. The other thing is just talking about language. I mean, I don't know how many of you have learned a different language, but if you speak other languages, one of the early things you quickly understand is that you cannot translate word for word for word because it doesn't really work that way. Language is all about context it's all about nuance. You know, if you talk about the Ten Commandments, something that seems like it should be really clear cut and very easy to translate, you shouldn't murder. That seems pretty straightforward. But when you really start talking about that, it's not straightforward. Does that mean murder or does it mean kill? And what about in self-defense? What about war? When you kill someone in war, that's, I mean, is that murder? Or what about if you don't like someone and you sort of exclude them from your universe? You know, they're dead to me. Well, I mean, that's murder. So there are all these levels of nuances that if you're going to be intellectually honest about it, you have to sort of say, well, okay, you know, this is what I believe, but I take it with a grain of salt because I recognize that we don't know everything. Um, And so it's very, very difficult to get into those conversations because I find that the people who are very adamant, the more adamant they are about dogma, the less uh, intellectually curious they are in general. Um, uh, Mary, I need to, um, on my console here, it just it had a server problem. It's asking me to log out, so I'm not sure, but I, I may stop the recording here. But okay. I, I have to log back off. I already got disconnected from the line, so I'm just kind of giving you a forewarning. I'm not sure what's going to happen here. This has never okay. happened before. So <laughs> well, let me see what happens there. We know there's a higher power that can take care of anything. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I thank you, Mary. This is Chuck in Tucson, and certainly a lot of time when you come because this is a matter which is dear, near and dear to my heart. Um, yeah. 
and I thank you for your answer. I love the response. We don't know everything. It's similar to the one I had uh, when I talked to Experiencer a couple of meetings ago, and and she came back with, I don't know what I don't know. Well, and that's what I've said multiple times. I only know what I know. And my job is to to describe my experience as accurately and precisely as I can. People ask me all kinds of things that I don't know. I mean, that doesn't mean it doesn't, it's like even simple things, like, gee, are there pets? Well, I don't know. I didn't see any, but that doesn't mean, <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. What it does mean is that these people are actually questioning and they are actually searching. Yes. And that is the positive thing about that. Is that yes. They, they are searching for answers, sometimes to verify what they want to believe, or sometimes they are, you know, sometimes intellectually dishonest in trying to manipulate what they, you know, are looking right. for the answer that they're expecting. Um, but they are searching. Yes. I think we all search. I think we're, you know, I think we're born with a longing to find our home, which is God's home. But there are those, I I really like what you said. You said that they are, the people that are, uh, what did you say, that they were not intellectually searching, or what was the word you used? Oh. Uh, and you said you found somebody that was not willing to change, that already had made up their mind, and that they intellectual not... Intellectual laziness and arrogance. Yeah, and there's an intellectual arrogance and... They're just, um, well, let's see. I don't know what I said. That was a few minutes ago. Right. There you go. Dogma. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah, they were less intellectually curious. Right. And I have I have a friend that, you know, his life is, it's his faith in God is not even, is something he doesn't even search for. It's right. just there. Uh, and yet well, others... and that's, yeah. I'm sorry. Oh no, Go that's, ahead. that's good. Go ahead. I just I would say that's um, one of the things that I find really sort of frustrating is that people start out like when you're a little kid or you know a young 